Howdy, my darlings, and welcome to The Librarian is In, the New York Public Library's podcast about books, culture, and hopefully what to read next. My name is Frank. And my name is Crystal. I definitely have a better laptop this time around. Yeah, you're coming in much clearer. So are you. Your background's lovely because it's inside of Jefferson Market, right? Yeah. Here I am getting ready to reopen after talking about it for a million years. But um, here we are. I'm exhausted at the end of the day. Yeah. I realize I usually wait for like email and stuff like that for the end of the day because I'm busy hauling books and setting up furniture and blah, blah, blah. And then I'm just so tired. I'm physically exhausted. I'm just one, not used to Mm -hmm. so much physical labor like I was before. Yeah. Um, two and a half years ago. Um, and then also, you know, the natural aging process. <laughs> but it's, I sleep really hard. <laughs> but we're getting ready. So, you know, early summer, we should reopen gloriously. Anyone listening who's going to be in town should come. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm excited. It's fun putting the collection together. I, I enjoy that. Were there a lot of things in storage that you had to unbox and put back on the shelves? Yeah. Yeah. Lots in storage and new stuff because we, you know, closed a while ago and had to get newer material, Mm -hmm. which we have. And it'll be, what's most interesting to me is just contemplating what the community will be like and what they will need and what they will want. I mean, I know some families have moved away. I know some people Mm -hmm. passed away. Yeah. Um, from natural causes and other, well, from what I know, just some of our older people in the neighborhood I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, we also say that we missed a, you know, a toddler, to, uh, a baby, to toddler generation. Because oh, yeah. closed, you know, they were born and then now they're three. And so we missed sort of that little first group, mm-hmm. one little generation, generational moment um i think we'll have a lot of families coming back we're going to have a ramp so strollers will be easy to get into uh, mm-hmm. which we didn't have before we had to haul the stroller yeah. upstairs so i think it's it'll be interesting i mean i'm always curious to possibly reinvent that that's the biggest challenge i have sometimes to myself is like i'm always eager to possibly reinvent a service Mm-hmm. And then sometimes it's like you don't have to reinvent every service. Like, so yeah, be be a library of what you've been before and be open to change. But not everything has to be reinvented. And so I've been much more oddly relaxed okay. <laughs> instead of flying around on a broomstick mm-hmm. screaming at the top of my lung. Yeah, and are you excited to see some of the regulars hopefully coming back again? Yeah, I mean we've been sort of sequestered in the library because we're not open and. I'm not on the street as much, <laughs> so to speak. And uh, but when I encounter someone like yeah. from the neighboring garden or um, people I know, they tell me like, "Oh, people keep asking, when are you opening? When are you opening?" <laughs> so I'm like, "Oh, maybe people miss us and they will come back." Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. I think it's it, it's going to look beautiful for sure. I mean, so yeah. and hopefully we'll have a nice, beautiful collection too. Are you going to have uh, like a grand reopening or anything like any events to celebrate um, that? That makes me <laughs> so much around you. 
Me, I know it makes me so anxious. I mean, I, one, I don't really feel like a party planner. Yeah. I'm terrible at that. I feel terrible at that, or I resist it. I, I think parties make me anxious. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think they make everyone anxious, but some people really enjoy organizing that. Mm -hmm. But in conjunction with neighborhood uh, groups, like uh, community groups, they've been sort of like, let's do something. So collaborating is my favorite. So there are, and there's a librarian on staff who wants to put together some things too, like a walking tour, a sort of yes. after hours soiree. Mm -hmm. A garden uh, party? I'm doing something with the garden in September. So we're going to, we will have a bunch of events through the summer, through early, early fall mm -hmm. that celebrate the reopening of the library. And, you know, the library itself will have like elected officials have a moment to say, look how beautiful it is. Cause they of course give us the money, mm -hmm. the city. Um, so there'll be a bunch of things. I just hope I don't, miss somebody because i know i like a year or two ago i was encountering people on the street mm -hmm. and saying like oh i will in i'll invite you to a sneak preview and now i'm like who did i tell this to i have to remember like <laughs> just to have them come in before we open and walk around this is a mm -hmm. special thing but i think it'll be okay so if anybody that's listening um was told by frank right to the sneak preview I like email him or put yeah, a, email in the sure. window or something. Whoa, I dropped the button. No. Um, sort of perched on a high stool at an oddly high counter. I'm just, my office is in disarray. Mm -hmm. And we don't have actual computers. We just have some laptops on loan. We haven't been installed yet. So, Are you getting new computers? I think so, yeah. Nice. Newer than we had, for sure. Yeah, that's good. No, we are. And that's like a final ingredient wiring up the joint, mm -hmm. which is happening now. Mm -hmm. I'm focused now on cleaning and arranging and shelving and mm -hmm. weeding and all that stuff. But um, I think it it's beautiful here. I'm so mm -hmm. lucky. It's just a beautiful yeah. library. I mean, I'm, I moved a couple of bookshelves into a room that has all these windows. And mm -hmm. um, for a while, I had had that room empty of shelves just like tables so people could enjoy the windows that look out of the garden mm -hmm. and then I was like I want to put the books overlooking the garden mm -hmm. I want well what did Voltaire say if you have a garden and a library you have everything <laughs> and that is sort of sweet that we we have our neighboring garden and we're a library and we work together and we're in the heart of Greenwich Village and Take a moment to be grateful. <laughs> I actually had, like, because I can get hysterical, like I've told you, about what I want to do. Like, when I want to do something, it feels like it has to happen right away. And, yeah. you know, I just was so on fire. I, get, I think that's part of my exhaustion at the end of the day is that I'm, I'm not used to revving up like I used to. And I'm just like, you don't have to rev up like that. I think identified as like, if I didn't, if I wasn't at full throttle, I wasn't really working. Yeah. My own personal thing. And um, so I was talking to the staff about something and I was sort of getting myself anxious about something, which I don't even remember, which is telling. And I just said, all right, stop really to myself. But the staff was there and I said, everybody just look up. 
And we all looked at the ceiling in the second floor, which we, which I had repainted, which is a big deal to repaint a two-story ceiling, which was a mess. And it's a better color and it's beautiful. And I just literally was had to say to myself, enjoy what you succeeded, what you what you had a victory over, like, in, at, or just appreciate it. Just live in that for a while because... Mm-hmm. Um, when I would look at the ceiling after it was done, I would feel a ping of like, yay, I did it. And then my eyes would go over to the lighting and be like, oh, we need new lighting. <laughs> and I'd immediately be on something else. And yeah. can I talk about this? Because I know I've mentioned this. Before. No, it's just such a relatable experience. I, right. think. I think that's just what it, yeah. Like you, you can't just sit in the moment and enjoy like all your accomplishments. You're just always looking forward to like the next thing that needs to be fixed. And Right. It feels self-indulgent and, and, um, and I realized it's like you'll always be under construction. Like, yeah. like we, me as a, as me, will, I realize will always be under construction because I'll always find a project that I'll want to do and make something better. And then the minute you paint one wall, then another wall needs to be painted, things like that. But also it's like a metaphor for just life. Like we're always yeah. sort of like tinkering with ourselves and trying to be better. Always under renovation. Always under renovation. And so, I mean, that's such a, you're right, relatable, universal thing. But it, yeah. when you really, like what I always say too, when you can say that, you can say, oh, we're always under renovation. But but you, there's a difference between saying it and then also feeling it. And I feel mm-hmm. like after this two and a half years of pandemic and shutdown and displacement, I really do feel it. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'll always be under renovation. So I see, we just got a new paint job on one of the walls and it's one part cracked off already, like a piece oh. cracked. Because buildings are old and God knows what's under there. And I literally looked at it and I just smiled. And I was like, of course, that's what life is. It throws you these curveballs. And just when you think you got it set, something Mm -hmm. interrupts. And I really literally did not, my blood pressure did not go up. Whereas two years ago, three years ago, I was like, great, bad job. They did a bad job. If I was able to, I would have all these reasons. I would have been a whirling dervish of mania and unpleasantness. And like, I mean, I think Jefferson Mark is a is a historical, like older building. I think it's part of the charm, maybe, just to embrace some of those imperfections Absolutely. and this perfect, like cookie cutter new building, you know, that we see when we go to banks and things like that, right? Um, so I think it's first of all, thank you because that's a, I really do believe feel that too, and I feel that aesthetically. Like we have these book trucks that are I've haven't seen in two years or mm-hmm. seen closely. And I was like, they are beat up. They're these old wooden book trucks worn down on one side, like t- tons of old tape from like 30 years ago, like war- like almost part of the wood grain. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, they're beautiful. Yeah, they are. I was like, they, I, I was like, I went out to the store and like bought some wood finish. Mm-hmm. Like, give them a little shine. <laughs> I'm to give these beat up babies a little shine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, I love them that they were enduring. I, I feel like this relates to the book we read a little bit about. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love that idea too, because, you know, like I think libraries stay with person from childhood all the way through adulthood and older age. And to know that maybe like a young person can leave and come back and be like, oh, that's the same like book cart that I saw shoved around when I was like 14 or whatever. I think that's a great thing because I've definitely gone back to places and been like, oh, this has changed so much that you don't even recognize it. Yeah. It feels like maybe you lose some of that memory or that connection to that memory. Well, did I tell you, speaking of that, like mm-hmm. um, a, a week or so ago, 
was a little hungover, <laughs> but I was walking down the street to get coffee mm -hmm. or going into the library. It was weekend, so we were closed, but uh, we're, we're closed, period. But um, nobody was working except me. But anyway, I was walking down the street and I heard this woman say, hi, librarian, or something like that. She, I don't think she knew my, remembered my name, but she said, hi, librarian. And I, I turned and of course I immediately went, hi. And I, <laughs> idea she was I was like oh no like frantically trying to remember and then she went oh it, I'm I'm and she named a name I'm his mom and I was like oh I don't remember the name it was a kid who who was in Boy Scouts and we did a outdoor gardening event with his troop mm -hmm. this is like 10 years ago probably and she remembered me from being the librarian around at the time and I said to her oh my god he must be like you know, married with children at this point or whatever, like an adult. And she was like, well, not quite, but he's in college. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and it was just like literally 10 or more years ago. And she yeah. remembered, why did I bring this story up? About old things and being remembered. Or, just, you know, or being like a, a memorable, consistent presence. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She saw her local librarian on the street. Uh, and I had done, you know, a program with her son that he needed to fulfill for Boy Scouts. And um, it was a link, I guess, a connection. And maybe yeah. me also being around so long is part of that. Maybe that's what I was trying to say, that my longevity, which has upsides and downsides like anything. Mm -hmm. uh, it, and the husband was there, too, and he was he was smiling and laughing. It was very, it was very sweet. I mean, and I remembered when she said who, whose mom she was. And. Um, I don't know. It was a, it was nice, and I yeah. felt sort of part of part of the community more yeah. so than living in it. More, I've never felt more a part of the community that as in my role as a librarian than I, because I also live in the village. I don't. I feel. No, 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 no. I feel more a part of the community as my as a librarian than as a resident. Mm -hmm. You know, I really feel like I can do more in that role than any other. You're so sweet. You're a good listener. You should be a psychoanalyst. <laughs> you really should. I mean, yeah. I, I you know, I just, just love those kinds of stories too, and, and hearing about that connection to the community because it is a nice feeling, you know. I mean, especially not so much with like when adults recognize me, but like when the kids, um, if I'm out and about on my day and then kids um, in the library, they're like, oh, it's Miss Crystal or whatever. Like, it's a nice feeling to be like, oh yeah, like I know you and you know, feel very connected to the community in those kinds of ways, yeah. There's such a thing about calling people that you, I guess, respect or um, or maybe children do like Miss Crystal or Mr. Frank. I hate being called Mr. Frank because it sounds like a hairdresser. I know it's it's a weird. Which is fine. I'm no diss to hairdressers. Yeah. It was when I was actually when I was little, like all the barbers were like Mr. Ted, Mr. John, Mr. Frank, and so it makes me. Well, what what am I saying then? What's the terrible of being perceived feeling like a hairdresser? I, I know, know. It, it's, it's very odd. Yeah, I I mean I, I always introduce myself just by like my first name to yeah. the teens and the younger kids. But I think I at a certain point started to realize that it was to make their lives a little bit easier because I think some of their parents really wanted them to use like 
Mr. or Ms. or whatever. And so she's like, here's the compromise. You can use this if that makes you feel more comfortable. Um, but it, it does feel weird to sometimes refer to myself as that, the Miss Crystal versus just Crystal. That's yeah. an interesting point because you just made me think of something that I think does relate to the book we read, which was like identity, one's self-identity, like, if someone said Mr. Frank, I would want to be like, no, just Frank. <laughs> but then somebody might have a need or a reason to call you, like you just said, Mr. Frank, because the parent wants to teach the kid respect mm-hmm. for elders or authority figures. Um, and whether that's an, it's interesting about that is that whether you agree with that or not, like personally, I would be like, that doesn't suggest authority or respect to me like just being called mister i would not say to a kid of mine um you have to call everyone older mister um unless that person wanted to be which is again and also a self-identity thing that they want you to call them um it's interesting an interesting navigation because my take on it would be when someone said mr frank i would say oh no 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 you don't have to do that thinking they were being formal as a matter of manners or being mm-hmm. polite, but they might have a, a personal need for whatever reason to actually call me that. And then do does one indulge that or, you know, respect that, let it be, or fight against it. And that that we see certainly in identity politics today about what to call someone, whether it's driven by the person being called or the person calling. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting, right? You know, it is really interesting, and I felt like I had similar struggles as a person who was, like, using whether or not to use, is it called a salutation? No, salutation, what is that called? Uh, Mr. Ms. Oh, uh, what, uh, what is it called? Mr. Miss, Ms., Mrs. is a moniker? No. Oh, I, I can't think of the word. Salutation is like a greeting. Like, yeah, um, right. Well, I'll, so I'll just say, like, um, like when we had patrons, someone um, out there is saying the word right now, and I wish I know, <laughs> like you idiots. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, like, but you know, in our database that we use, and sometimes you have to like talk to a patron, and then I always had this struggle of like, do I um, say your last name and then do Mister or Ms.? But then that's such a like you know, binary gender definition, you have to make a decision for them by saying Mr. or Ms., right? And that also feels really unfair. And so I often would just use the first name, um, which was in my previous job, what we used to do. But then I started to recognize that I think maybe people who were older within the community um, felt a little of that disrespect if I, as a young person, was calling them by their first name. So it was like an eternal struggle of like trying to figure out um, what felt the most like respectful um, to them. And and I I think at a certain point, I was just like, I'm just not going to use any names, which is not the solution. But um, I, I definitely struggled with that a lot. I mean, and it's, it's not a it's not an in stone kind of thing. I mean, for some weird reason, now when I think about it, the p- adults I grew up with in my neighborhood as a kid, I called them all by their first name, mm-hmm. and it w- it was like if I I think I once said Mrs. Something, and they were like, "It's Eleanor," mm-hmm. you know, like I was ten, mm-hmm. which suddenly seems interesting to me, like why they were so yeah. cash. Um, I don't know. It's um, I'll say it's. 
I think it's also different for different communities. I think for some communities of color, you know, like right. we're infantilized even as an adults in a, a, like kind of racist ways and things like that. So I can see why if you're being called by your first name, um, it cannot be good in certain situations if you don't know the person. Um, well, this is a good microcosm of a lot of issues in the book and also yeah. in the world about how you navigate other people. Mm -hmm. um, in a world that is now sort of saying we all have different needs, we all have different presentations, we all have different identities, mm -hmm. and how to best navigate that, you know, and because when you think about it, like, you know, when, when there's a hard and fast rule, like, let's just for, I mean, say in the 50s, which is, you know, over-exaggerating, but like, you know, every child called an adult Mr. or Mrs. or Miss, let's say, and it it was a hard and fast rule for argument's sake. It's, it could be in quotes easier to navigate a social landscape, but also probably painful for a lot of people because it doesn't really make sense to them yeah. or it isn't something they want, or some people won't have been determined by society to be worthy of Mr. Or miss. They'd be boy. Yeah. Um, in terms of racial relationships. So, Opening it up like that is so is a, is a great thing. This is a good point because it does relate to the book, which we should get to. In that it, it's it's a great thing to have people be able to say who they are mm -hmm. if they feel they know who they are and they want that to be known, mm -hmm. and for other people to seek to. You say respect, and I I think respect is something that takes longer to to earn really but what I mean what I usually think of it is in terms of seek to have really good manners mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I, what I it sounds quaint but what I mean is just like the perspective of saying I want to be as polite and nice to this person mm -hmm. as I can because they're another human being who suffers like I do mm -hmm. and even if they're like they're cranky or cantankerous it's still it's it helps you remember even if you say well I don't respect that mm -hmm. I can still have good manners because it always works out better in the end mostly mm -hmm. like as, us as library people like when someone comes in and they're they could be sort of loud and angry and you and they're bringing their outside life into the library and you know that right away you could automatically match them with a little bit like hey lower that voice and blah, blah. but sometimes mm -hmm. it's just it's a good policy to just be have good manners back and maybe that'll bring them down so having good manners when you encounter someone in, in a way says um I'm trying to, to, to give you the kindness that you need, but understand that I don't know what you need per se. Yeah. Maybe mm -hmm. I don't know, or maybe I've misjudged what you need, but I'm trying. And yeah. it's a two-way street, you know, but that again is a, is, a, is a judgment call because everyone has their own set of emotions and expectations. And, you know, I could be trying to be good manners and mm -hmm. be perceived as being irreverent or rude. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I'm not, the, why did you call me that? That's not who I am. Or don't call me that. I'm this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a toughie, I think. But it, but the underpinning of that is that I think it's a good thing because it's good to, I think it's good to bust open social convention 
and revisit it, maybe my reinvention obsession, because it's sort of like what we've done that throughout time, throughout history. We talked about this the last time about like, you know, 50 years ago, homosexuality was a mental illness. And at some point in history, black people were not considered fully human. That's language. That's how we designated the hierarchical arrangement of people. And there's no reason why not revisit that. It's social evolution, hopefully of evolution. So someone says I'm non-binary or I'm this, and people are like, what do you mean? There's two sexes. Mm -hmm. Like, well, okay, that's what we're used to, and it does seem very entrenched. But like, why not revisit it? Because yeah. we change language all the time. Yeah, Miss became Ms. in lots mm -hmm. of ways, things like that. I mean, and it just takes the aggregate of people to sort of, you know, agree to it, agree to that truth, and that becomes when people agree, it becomes a truth. Mm -hmm. for better or worse, hopefully better. And, and society moves on. Yeah. You know, we talk about this book, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. Did you enjoy it? <clears throat> uh, well, <laughs> I know before we started recording, you were like, you need to, re you said you need to read more sci-fi. I always thought you read a lot of science fiction. Um, not really. Do I, I don't know. You're very. I, know. I read a lot. What's Terry Pratchett like? That's fantasy, right? Yeah. I find oh. there's a turtle in space. Um, yeah, some things. I I feel like I don't read as much as I would like to because I really do enjoy the sci-fi books I've read. This one's kind of weird because, like, I maybe because of the book cover, I really thought it was all going to take place on like a spaceship and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I actually feel like the sci-fi book I was expecting and I don't think that's a bad thing um and I also was um yeah, kind of pleasantly surprised I, I think it would be like a good uh older teen book because the writing and some of the themes in it felt much like younger than maybe a standard adult book um anyways exactly I I agree with you um in that it's cataloged as adult mm -hmm. adult sci-fi collection. I think this would be a great young adult book because primarily because it does, it does go there in terms of harsh realities of abuse and, um, you know, uh, homophobia, transphobia, domestic violence. Yeah. Yeah. But it does spoiler alert, even though this is a spoiler filled discussion um, ends happy. And it ends happy for everyone. And I think that sort of struggle and then resolution of, you know, um, finding your place is it <laughs> sounds weird to say, but like a very young adult thing. And whereas mm -hmm. adult books can be more all over the place in terms of not ending so happy. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what I, you know what I mean? I don't mean to de denigrate anything like a happy ending yeah. is that, but it sort of gives hope. It's very hopeful. And mm -hmm. even though it does deal with these violent subjects, there's a lot of cozy, oddly enough, in this book, and a lot of um, like real warmth and mm -hmm. hope, optimism. Um, when I when you asked if I enjoyed it, I was like, well, I don't read a lot of science fiction, and it certainly had a lot of science fiction elements, a lot of like fantasy elements. You should tell a little bit about this the plot, but it has definitely has like this intergalactic sci-fi aspect, and then also this um, fantasy demon. Yeah. Hell going to hell aspect. And when you really think about it, which I did not really think about until after I read it, was that 
the author, Aoki, is really doing something crazy here in that she's putting in the same universe aliens from another galaxy and mm -hmm. demons and the existence of hell. Like, yes. in a way, when you think about it, it's like, how does that work? Like, uh -huh. well, it's sort of like identity we were just talking about. It's like, how does that universe really work? And I think part of my... Um, nerves that I'll take it on myself rather than accusing someone else of like being a, not a good writer is that I need maybe a lot of hand holding with world building in science fiction and fantasy mm -hmm. because I get, I get very 10 year old and I'm like, but why, but why? <laughs> like, I want to know why, like, why are there demons and also aliens? Like, you know, and then uh, I think mm -hmm. fans of the genre are like, Oh, I get it. I get what she's doing. And I feel like I'm more like, at sea, because in a, in a melodrama of a human emotions book, I'm like, oh, I can figure that out because it's like interrelationships between people. And I, I do that all the time and I'm very interested in it. But when it's like an alien comes to earth and poses as a donut shop, shop proprietor mm -hmm. and then the demon tries to get your soul to send it to hell, I'm like, how do these work? <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So well, how would you tell... If I can tell the synopsis of this story. Okay, let me think about this. So there is a character named Katrina who is like, I think runs away from home, has an abusive father, a mom that doesn't really support her, I think. Um, and in her path, her path crosses with another character um shizuka who is the queen of hell which i took as a metaphor for a while before i was like oh no no <laughs> there's a real hell she really is the it's queen not just like demon like he's he's an actual demon <laughs> um and shizuka has made this deal with the devil situation where she has to deliver seven souls to hell and has seven years a piece for each soul and she's delivered six of those souls and those six people have essentially uh signed a contract uh trading their souls in order to have like fame fortune through the playing of like the violin and shizuka is like their their teacher instructor um and then there's this kind of like other characters are introduced in this donut shop <laughs> of Lon um, and her kids and family and they are aliens and I mean that I mean that whole story was kind of wild but okay. but I also thought it was like very interestingly done in a very like sci-fi way which is a reflection of like you know current day realities and I think because it was like a, a refugee story right yeah, refugee. Um, yeah, yeah so she leaves the empire which is like another planet and comes to earth to uh, presumably build this donut shop so that um, intergalactic tourists can come and witness uh, the, like a, is it like an end plague or something like that? Where um, the planets around may get destroyed, but Earth would be fine. Right. Um, but it's also to like save her family. I, it, it was very odd. And then all their lives kind of like mesh together. And um, I, I, yeah, I a terrible synopsis. But <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, there, there are like, interesting um facets to the story like you just said because when i was reading it i was like well basically they're aliens from a, a doomed mm -hmm. galaxy that are coming to yes. earth which they've through their advanced calculations realized will be safe and they're basically setting up a money-making like 
tourist operation mm -hmm. for their fellow aliens to come to observe the galaxy explode while being in a safe place. So mm -hmm. it's all like, come on over to our donut shop and watch the world explode, but you'll be okay. And mm -hmm. like, to, but, but really to save, go ahead. No, I was going to say like, um, that was like such an interesting, on the, the surface of it, that story is like kind of ridiculous, almost has this like hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy kind of quality to it um, and some of the absurdity. But it the author does a very, like very clearly draws this line um, and connects it to like the Vietnamese like refugee experience, I think, because the Shizuka like meets Lon and and misunderstands what Lon is initially saying about her like travel and her move. And it's like, oh, you're from Vietnam, you're, you know, Cambodia, Vietnam, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but if you like keep that kind of comparison in your head, I think it relates to maybe a lot of like Asian displacement stories idea like oh you're going to this new place to create a new life but maybe you're also escaping something else and you can't ever like let go of that or forget it either the home you know and in the end another spoiler Lon does like leaves her kids um in, in earth and then does go travel back home um um with Shizuka and the idea that like the in plague that is happening in her home planet is actually fixable and solvable. And I wonder if there's like correlations to the idea of like you've left the place, but maybe you can go back and like find different ways to be a part of a solution. I don't know. But it was very interesting to me. Well, yeah. the in plague is interesting because it's it's not fully it well, it is defined, but it's not clarified particularly to by the end of the book. You mm -hmm. gather that it's some sort of um malaise or existential depression yeah. about mortality that yeah. like when society realizes it's not going to survive or live just as human beings or as living beings there can be this feeling of end plague that it's mm -hmm. going to um there's no reason to even do anything it's sort of like a depression or existential questioning I um, this, you did you watch this is related did you watch um everything everywhere all at once no but it seems really interesting i'll say this the donut shop and the donuts reminded me a lot of the existential bagel in the movie oh interesting i want to see that that's yeah. a um michelle yeo mm -hmm. who i love mm -hmm. and jamie lee curtis um so, but what you were saying too before about the refugee or immigrant experience, it's interesting because how this relates to the other storylines in the book, mm -hmm. the family comes from the other galaxy to earth to make this way station during the intergalactic or explosion, whatever. And they take on the physicality of human beings, but they're really aliens mm -hmm. like they have two knees or four knees or and they're purple colored yeah. and green hair uh, so it's an interesting comment on immigration about trying to fit in assimilation yeah assimilate um mm -hmm. into a neighborhood that you could not stand out too much whereas katrina um who is another protagonist really in this book um is a trans girl mm -hmm. and struggles with her own presentation in terms of not liking her body. Her hands are too big. Her voice is too low. Mm -hmm. She doesn't cry, which is an interesting thing when she says she doesn't cry like a girl, mm -hmm. which to me, it's an interesting thing about that because when I was 
when I was in the like a kid in the 70s and, and 80s, it's like the thing about feminist classes and, and learning about gender was like how similar we are and that to say um, girls should be pretty and, should, and girls cry and boys don't was like the big discussion about how very similar we can be. Yeah. And now it it's, it's, seems, unless I'm wrong, it seems like there's this sort of like interest in, while saying gender is fluid, that there are sort of like behaviors for each gender that um, are desirable by someone else who might want to transfer to, or tra you know, transition to that other gender. I, I think it's, it's the, I think I interpret it as like the desire to meet the societal expectations yeah. of what that gender is, right? Like, um, I feel so like that's, that's, what, that's what makes me, sorry to interrupt, but that's what makes me like get fiery sometimes. Cause I'm like, well, the, the societal expectations when I was younger was like, we're to not give into those, but to sort of mm -hmm. question why we, we even want to do that. I mean, I remember having an argument in college with a very, um, you know, fiery young woman about feminism. And she was, I, she was talking and I said like, well, why are you wearing makeup? Mm -hmm. You're talking about gender roles and about how we're very similar and how women should not be put into this as like, and you know, why are the guys in this room not wearing makeup? Mm -hmm. and it was an interesting conversation because it was sort of like, well, you know, why, why would she wear makeup? Because when she was talking about, I'm not gonna, I don't have to meet society's expectations of what a girl or young woman is, but yet, and she was saying, like, I remember she said, well, I, well, I, you know, the, I wear it because I want to wear it. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel good. And really, you can't argue with that. If someone tells you that, then you have to really respect that because mm -hmm. it's, there's no way to counter it. If they feel that way and that's this decision, you can't. You can debate it. Um, and I wanted to, but sort of like, oh, because I was trying to maybe push an agenda of like, you're wearing it secretly. You're not admitting the fact that, you know, the patriarchy is pushing you in this position to wear makeup. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I decided it's not, I didn't feel like it was my place to do that. You know? I mean. Sorry, I went on a tangent there. No, I mean, I, I think there's an interesting question um, in thinking about like how much of societal expectation kind of like infuses our lives and where like makeup like stands in that. Um, and and feeling like you do maybe have to like look a certain way, like not even based on gender, you know, but for different reasons. Um, um, but also like recognizing that everybody's just trying to like do their best and like, you know, it's all a kind of a struggle and they're just trying to, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I agree. It's another thing that, you know, whenever, I mean, it's part of my personality, I'll have to own this, that when, I feel like a phrase or a word in the culture gets used a lot. I sometimes, it surfaces for me, surfaces one of them, but I, that I'm like, well, why do we keep saying that? Because then I feel like it loses its meaning when we keep saying it over and over and over because it's mm -hmm. just a go-to for a very real issue. Um, and I could be wrong, but that's what I tend to do. And one of those words is condition. When, when we see on social media or something like, oh, we've been conditioned to. Yeah. And sometimes I question like, well, like who conditioned us mm -hmm. specifically and also like how does that really conditioning work because mm -hmm. in some ways I, I want to say like we're 
I don't feel like we can be conditioned for everything. We come into this world with our own genetic makeup, <laughs> personality possibilities, yeah. proclivities, and that meets society and together, like between the individual and the culture around them and how they perceive it, form a personality and your parents and uh, so many different elements. So it's not like you're a blank slate and you're suddenly, you know, your brain is opened and it's like you're pouring in conditioner <laughs> to make you believe a certain thing. I mean, that was why the makeup argument was interesting to me because it was like really trying to figure out is it just an automatic go-to because you've, mm -hmm. you're so used to perceiving women as having to wear makeup or is it something you truly enjoy doing? Um, it could be just, I don't know, like feeling more comfortable with it because, I mean, I see, I kind of do yeah. think there is con the conditioning that happens. Yeah. I mean, I feel like maybe, and I agree with you, like, you know, being kind of born in a, in a blank slate situation, I can feel like, uh, you know, if you're somebody who doesn't really engage with like media very much, and by media I mean like books, film, things like that, I, maybe like you can escape it in some ways. But I'm sure that's coming to you through like family and the people that you interact with, um, unless you're just like a hermit somewhere. But just you know, we read a lot of books, we consume a lot of films, things like that, and I do think that there certain things get normalized, right? You know, and I watch a lot of like romance movies and rom-coms and read those books and uh, heterosexual relationships are very much the norm. Like that is normalized. And I've had experiences where um, I like have said things and had to question myself and be like, well, why was my first thought that like some jokey comment about my cat's Pablo dating another cat. Like he couldn't date another cat because he was a boy or whoever, you know? And I was like, that is the, that kind of um, mm -hmm. hetero, like normative thinking that um, I'm yeah. complicit in. I mean, I, I feel like I can't say like, I don't want to say that I've been conditioned to as a way of alleviating my own personal responsibility in, but um, it is, it does surround me. And I think it is good to like question it. Um yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, for sure. I mean, every society has that. I mean, you can only, you can realize what, the, what we call conditioning, how, how that occurs if we go into it, a culture that's radically different from ours. Because yeah. then you realize, oh, I believe these things were true. Mm -hmm. And how did I come to that? Because I lived in this particular culture, whereas this culture has no recognition of what I believe to be true because they grew up in their own. Yeah. And so you can see how, and if I had grown up in that other culture, I'd probably be more like that and have the same um, general principles. I guess I'm always striving also to to reduce what we call culture or society to, to individual individuals, because it's easy to say, oh, well, society does. I think that's really mm -hmm. what I'm saying is like, so society conditions us to blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, you know, like I've said, we've, we're, all, we're all part of society. We contribute yeah. to that too. So we have this sort of personality that can actually, and obviously does fight against what we see as societal norms, just like you said. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the story, so like Katrina is a horribly abused by her parents, trans girl who encounters Shizuka, mm -hmm. the um, queen of hell. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically Katrina becomes the seventh and final possible soul that Shizuka is mm -hmm. going to be able to get. And then, be free herself because she made this contract with a demon, Tremel mm -hmm. Philippe. The little toad. The little toad who looks like a toad. Um, so we got those two, and then Tran and her family, or uh, Lan, Lan Tran, Tran yeah. and her fam family. 
And then there's also Lucy Mattia, who is the violin repairer, restorer, um, who whose storyline is interesting because it's it, her tussle is basically that her family had this violin repair shop, um, very high end or can be high end uh, shop that was passed down from father to son to son to son, and she's the first sort of like centered female proprietor of this place. Mm -hmm. A lot of her story is um, that she's a girl or woman and could never, doesn't have the legacy of that her a brother would have had or a son would have had. And I found that interesting about what I said before about me growing up for 40 years ago. Like uh, um, I was like, we were talking about that same, same issues 40 years ago about women being able to carry on a so-called male legacy or be able to do as well as they, as their forebear, male forebearers. And I was like, this is still an issue and still being discussed today, at least in this book. And it certainly is. Um, so we have her story. And actually her story doesn't come to such a great end in a way. It just occurred to me. She becomes, I think she becomes the next, by the end of it, she's a very sympathetic character, but she becomes the next sort of possible person to make a deal with the demon. Oh, yeah. It, I, but it, it was a little open-ended, so I, I felt like I, in my positivity, was like, oh, no, no, she'll be fine. <laughs> mm -hmm. But maybe she was saying, the author was saying, you know, she struggles with her own identity and her mm -hmm. feelings of self-worth mm -hmm. or lack of it, and that she is, and that's really what I think the book says forces us to make or propels us to make deals with the devil, so to speak, is our lack of self-worth and feeling like, yes, they're promising they'll fix this and I can't resist it. I cannot resist um, getting that feeling. And it never comes to good, the book says. It's like, it never really comes to good because it's sort of, you're not being yourself. You're not, you're not struggling through it yourself. You can't get off that easy. I mean, like we said, I said before about Katrina, who doesn't like her physicality, mm -hmm. um, she would give anything to sort of look more like a girl mm -hmm. and not be, or at least not be perceived as a boy. Mm -hmm. And at, even at one point, which is another interesting contrast, she gets whistled at when she's a teenager and she feels great about it because the whistler guy mm -hmm. sees her as a girl. And of course, 40 years ago, the big, a big issue was like, women were like, we don't want to be whistled at, <laughs> you know? But in this case, it made her feel like she was passing or successful at her presentation and how she felt inside. Um, but by the end of it, Katrina doesn't want to change her physicality. I mean, that that's the promise that's made to her if she does sell her soul. Um, and she plays with this like AI or virtual reality stuff mm -hmm. that, softens her features and makes her look more to her physical ideal than she feels she has. But by the end of it, she's just about her in, inner world and her music and, um, and the projection of that music, which makes everyone beautiful listener as well as player mm -hmm. and doesn't need to change her body to make her happy. I have a quote from one of those scenes because there's another character, Shirley, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, who's also very interesting. But um, Shirley is uh, the daughter of Lan. And um, because they have alien technology, they were able to change their bodies to kind of assimilate and fit in. 
And so Shirley makes that offer to Katrina. And then Katrina, because um, I think, you know, like you said, like that's what she wanted. But then at the very end, uh, the quote is, Katrina took a deep breath and she looked at her hands. Shirley, thank you. Thank you so much. But if I change my body now, I would need to relearn the violin. But Really, um, it's more than my hands. It's my body. Everything it's been through, everything it's felt, it's all become a part of the way I play. Sure, it's not perfect, but it's mine. That's good, isn't it? Besides, I'm already a girl. So you're like, I just like love that too, that kind of realization of like, you know, this is me and, and that's everything it should be. And like, you know, I should be valued for who I am. Um, so I felt like her, I don't know. It, yeah. Oh, totally about physical, physical, accepting oneself, at least yeah. physically is so important. It's so important. It's, it's hard to o- overestimate that. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still like what I said before, interesting about like, I still feel like a girl. I know in the culture now it's like, you know, it's like to ask the question, what is a woman? What is a man? And have, have someone answer it. Is it very... Yeah. And like I said, at the top of this discussion is a great conversation. I think it's a great conversation to have. And if you don't answer right away, like some, some sides of the debate are like ridiculous. It's like, how could you not answer that question? What is a woman? And it's well, like, I, yeah. we're talking about the nature of these things, period. And that's a social evolution thing, which is fine. But is good. I, I will say this. I feel like when you're asking those questions and having discussions about those questions, I think you do it in good faith. I feel like a lot of politicians are doing right. it in bad faith and they're asking the questions to twist your answers to right. get things that they want. For, for want their 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 <laughs> and yes. their factions, exactly. They're playing to their audience, which are now all these audiences in their own bubble and refusing to budge and have a conversation about it for real in good faith. Like you just said, that's a great way to put it put aside your your training your conditioning your what your personal bias and to say why not have this discussion when you like i said when you think about it social personas have changed throughout the years it's just what happens why not gender it's it's totally a fine conversation to have if people want to if people activize to have this conversation that's exactly how the world works or at least our country you know, like you activize to get attention and then the conversation happens and hopefully social change occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she say, says, uh, you know, I already am a girl, it's like what I said before about like how my particular education was about removing what girls and boys are and mm-hmm. having them be just people. Yeah. And like, yeah, you're he or she, but it's like you both share so much that, girls don't have to take ownership of pretty and boys don't have to take ownership of stoic and girls don't have to take ownership of makeup and boys don't have to take ownership of yeah. masculine muscles and stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can be both. And I find that just, I see, talk about conditioning. Um, it's not the worst kind of conditioning, but I do feel that sort of still that desire towards like, I wish we could all be whatever we want to be. Um, mm-hmm. And, not have to have it so externally manifested, you know, like the external, yeah. almost like whatever, like it doesn't matter as much. It's just like really what is inside us. And we don't have to have our external change to make us feel better, but I get it. I mean, I was fussing over my hair, like no one's business <laughs> this morning and literally, and I was thinking about these issues. And when I walked out of the bathroom, I was like, you just spent 20 minutes 
fretting over your hair. So what are you talking about? We shouldn't worry about externals. Of course they matter. Well, I was going to add like the quote that I read when it, it continues a little onwards because um, Katrina then thinks like, you know, Shirley Ball, people, because Shirley is, uh, we haven't talked about Shirley, but she is somebody who is like within a like data program. Um, I don't know how to describe it. Oh, cybernetic, cybernetic. That's the word. She was, yeah, she was Lan's daughter, but the daughter, stillborn, the actual yeah. daughter, died in birth, mm-hmm. was stillborn. And she created a, a um, land, created a AI mm-hmm. yeah. cybernetic thing that she input a lot of sh- the baby into, um, mm-hmm. surely. That, so it's her daughter, but she is a um, computer program mm-hmm. or hologram. And Katrina says, um, surely of all people should have known that what matters is not the body, but who inhabits it. And I think this whole book is so much about like souls too, right? And I I think that's very um, interesting to think about. Well, I mean, this author, I think this is her first book, right? Puts all she's got into it. Like she's like fantasy uh, and all these social issues. Because that's another one about a, about, I keep saying AI. I'm just using these words just to. (laughs) <laughs> cover my cybernetic i think was the word that was used i don't know what that completely cybernetic all right she's she's not organic biological matter yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. i can say that mm-hmm. <laughs> and then at one point lan wants shirley to do something and shirley refuses and so lan says well <laughs> clearly there's a glitch in shirley's yeah. wiring so i'm gonna destroy her like you know shut her down mm-hmm. and rebuild her again and Shirley's like, no, don't do that. And so mm-hmm. it brings up the issue of what is human even? What is because human? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's not. She's technically not. Oh. And I've ma- it made me think a lot about that too. And he's like, well, she's not human. So she should be, she should be shut down and not, no one should cry about it. But I was like, we become attached to all sorts of things that are so-called not human. Mm-hmm. And would cry like, oh, even over a, a pet that is biological, but not human. I mean, you, know, you cry over the loss of a house or the mm-hmm. loss of any, you know, so we have emotions that attach to certain yeah. to things. So it's like, it brings up the questioning again, what is human? And I was like, here's another issue. This Aoki gal mm-hmm. is tossing at us with uh, this book. Cause it really, it covers a lot. First off, Frank, how dare you? She is human. <laughs> Who? Sure. Oh, <laughs> Shirley. Well, the name like Shirley. Shirley decided. I was Every like, time I saw the name Shirley. I was just like, I couldn't help but think of her as human because it's such a it's such an old school name. I was like Cheryl. Mm-hmm. Hey Cheryl. She's like, hi. And she can teleport herself from wherever yeah. wherever. So she just shows up sometimes, mm-hmm. like to I, hang out with Katrina and be like, hey girl. <laughs> I mean, I saw I saw the Shirley and Lon storyline because the other thing was like Lon wanted to duplicate Shirley so that Shirley could help on this like space journey, but also stay at the donut shop. And then wanted right. to um, put in an auto self-destruct um, scenario in case that, but like it was like in that moment, like Lon, who I think had in many ways treated Shirley like a, like a real daughter in, in a lot of ways, um, but not necessarily, not quite because even Shirley remarked about how like, you know, every morning she would say, hello mother. And um, Lon wouldn't quite look her in the eye. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in that moment when, she was given those instructions to, to duplicate, to possibly self-destruct. Um, I saw that as very much as like a mother-daughter, like parental story, because the mom was not recognizing her her humanness and her own personal autonomy. Yes. And I think 
parents maybe come to that point too especially as like uh, young people are growing up and becoming their own like human like fully realized human selves that maybe don't need the parents there and I, I saw that struggle in the way that Shirley ran away and the way that Shirley went to like Katrina talked about um well, she was afraid that she didn't have value and was talking about self-destructing, you know, like in in the AI kind of way. But I think you think about like teenagers and young people and that idea of self-destruction and how mm-hmm. that manifests. And so that was like like really painful and like sad. Mm-hmm. But, um, Interesting, because because uh, Katrina obviously, who's a teenager, struggles with yeah. Suicide. There was a relation, and I I remember too. Th- there's this idea of the go bag. I, like, did you notice? Oh, that? Yeah, yeah. But Katrina had a go bag, and that was a bag that had all of her necessities because she had to leave at any moment. Right. She she worries that Shirley doesn't have a go bag when um uh, uh Shizuka leaves. She provides a go bag. Like, I think the go bag is this manifestation of this like fear that like no place is home for you that you always have to escape in order to be safe. I found that to be like a really powerful like symbol in the book as well, even yeah. though it sounds kind of like silly and funny, but it was just like, no, I mean, well, the that. idea of home is yeah. a big issue in the book too. I mean, because there's lots of descriptions of food, by the way, if anyone's interested. <laughs> and donuts. Of, of all sorts of different cultural cuisines, like descriptions of that. And it's definitely related to a sense of home, like the smells, the familiar, familiarity, the pleasures of what we relate to as homey or cozy. And that's definitely discussed. Um, but the opposite side of that, uh, Shizuka, who is the queen of hell, the the woman who's, I don't really know why she made a deal with the demon, The de- where the demon was like, you have to, <laughs> I can't believe I just said that seriously. Like, I don't really know why she made a deal with the demon. Because she had to get, like you said, seven souls over 49 years, seven years each. And then she will be what? I think she. I think Shizuka was having herself, trouble. Right? What? I thought she also had like an injury. Right. She, she was not- having trouble with her hands, and she couldn't play the violin mm-hmm. as well or at all. And the demons finds the weaknesses in the world and and finds you, and then says, "Oh, I'll, you'll you can have your violin playing ability back if you do this." So, but so she's also granted immortality too because she doesn't really age. Um, oh, yeah. So she. Which is it's just interesting because I kept so she basically said send six young violin prodigies to hell, mm-hmm. and she doesn't really pay for that. Because no, Katrina, but- well, Katrina is like such a soul that mm-hmm. she responds to that she decides not to sacrifice Katrina, and you find out when you read it. Um, but what were you going to say? So she doesn't. I. Still found uh, Shizuka like a sympathetic. I don't think she was ever kind of portrayed as a villain, um, even as this queen of hell person. And I think some of that was because, from my interpretation, it seemed like she had these contracts, and the contracts were very like clear to the six people. Like they knew what was happening. Even Katrina like knew what was happening and was willing to like sacrifice herself in order to save Shizuka um, and other things. But I think for those people. And I think for Shizuka initially, they were willing to trade everything for like the fame, love, whatever with with the music. And I think over the course of the book, I think Shizuka sort of starts to realize that that the music matters less than than these relationships, like the like love that she ends up feeling for Katrina and for Lon, you know, and um, and I also got the sense too the thing that made Katrina different than 
those other six souls and uh, Shizuka initially is that the music was like an ex expression of her own like feelings. She talked about how I think her first big performance and Shizuka asked her how she felt. And she was like, I felt like powerful. I felt like um, I could protect you and I could protect everybody who was listening to my music. So it was about the people and like the music was just a tool to like protect those people. And Shizuka was like left speechless by that. Well, th that is interesting because that's very persuasive. Thank you. Because like Shizuka, she, she, the, the students who do sign this deal basically have flaws in that and weaknesses in that they can't resist the, mm -hmm. the so-called selling their soul for perfection. Um, but I guess you could, you could drill down and say Shizuka by at least the third soul could sort of feel like, all right, this is a pattern. I don't want to be a part of this. Yeah. But I think when, when you just explained what you explained, it made me realize, I think the author is trying to make Shizuka a, she's embittered and cynical. Mm -hmm. She's a, she's a, a, she's almost like Anna Winter. <laughs> she's like super powerful and a little seen it all and hard edged, but yet does beautiful things or wants to. Um, it's weird, but I'm, um, She's and she, the the case is made that when her hands don't play the violin, she thinks her parents are going to be very like sympathetic and like, oh my darling, but they're mm -hmm. furious because the mm -hmm. meal ticket's gone or the you know the glory is gone, and I think that sets her on this road. But she is really sort of a good person underneath it all. Um, but she, you know, she when you if you think about it, if if you were privy to any of this, which you're not scenes mm -hmm. any of those six kids that she sent to hell i'm sure she would be painted not so pretty even though like you said these kids young people signed a contract and know what they're doing this is an interesting uh nuance yes so they know what they're doing but shizuka like i said by at least the third one would know where this is going and try to stop it but that would also mm -hmm. sacrifice herself which she eventually does for Katrina. She sacrifices herself. Mm -hmm. She decides, well, there you go. Well, thank you, Crystal. That does clarify her, her, her journey a little more. I will, yeah, I will say the, the author does make it very clear, you know, that Shizuka, like the music is everything. She would sacrifice everything to, in order to play her music the way she wants to and, and all this kind of stuff, right? I will say that like, you do still, and now I'm starting going the other way now. <laughs> I feel like you do bring a good point because there is this, look, this Shizuka story works in this particular book because the author is trying to tell these particular stories under like certain themes, right? Of, of maybe like love and family and motherhood. If this scenario was happening in Vladimir, which was the book I talked about last yeah. time, that power situation of the students and her as a teacher mentor, I think takes on different kinds of connotations, right? And then I think we would like investigate it in a different kind of way. And she would be a villain in that book. In this book, I don't think she's a villain so much. Um, but anyways, it is just I mean, yeah. She could have gone different ways. I mean, I, I was wondering if Shizuka would, would be, would go to hell. And I wouldn't have thought it terribly wrong. Yeah. She do a lot of damage in life. Um, but she gets a happy ending with Lan. Mm -hmm. The girls go off in a spaceship to conquer new worlds together. Um, yeah. You think so? Mm, it, it's, 
I, yes, I guess it's a happy ending. We're um, almost like John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John in the car going up into the heavens at the end of Greece. Yes. <laughs> Do you know that scene? Uh, yes. You're looking perturbed at my... Well, oh, no, no. I was just like looking at one of the, the quotes, just like thinking more about the um, idea of Katrina being different from the previous students. And that kind of like... Um, revealed itself to, I mean, I'm trying to think about like how the music like really plays in it as well. Um, because it, cause Katrina doesn't seem like she is good at playing her music initially until Shizuka comes to this realization that Katrina needs to follow music, right? And there's a section in there um, where it talks about the girl was playing to follow. Um, and she kind of describes some of her previous students and then goes on to say, every one of Shizuka's prior students, everyone clawed for their musical freedom in their own way. Shizuka had been trying to teach Katrina with the same assumptions, but Katrina had always been free. She had been free of acceptance, free of love, free of trust. Mm -hmm. So now she clung to anyone who would tell her which way to go, which way was safe to anyone who would give her a star. Um, there was no chance of becoming great solely through following, but for now that was how they would connect. And then like that becomes mm -hmm. the transformative moment in which um, Katrina's like is able to learn music in a different way because Shizuka understands Katrina and where she's coming from, I guess. Um, but I also thought, I just felt like that was such a weird and interesting way of describing freedom. You know? Yes. Because yes. <laughs> uh, it's, free of also the so-called good things. Yes. Like, like the, yeah. the human loving things. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting way. And mm -hmm. persuasive, I think, because it sort of it, uh, it sort of acknowledges the the multi multiplicity of the human condition in that mm -hmm. when we say freedom, it means usually a very positive thing, but it could also have darker connotations or mm -hmm darker payments for freedom. Mm -hmm. There's always a price to pay, it seems. There's always, you know, in the human struggle, there's always a ambiguity to a success in lots of ways. I mean, they, the book also talks about success and it's like almost without fail, it says that when you achieve something, the after the initial high, insecurity always comes back in. That uh, you can achieve many things, and you 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 think that it's going to solve you, and that it will satisfy you. But usually, what and it, it's explicit in this book is that after you feel fabulous for a minute, you're back to sort of like your same self. Like it doesn't really change change that per se. It doesn't fill you in the way you think it will. The external success, which is what you just talked about. Um, uh, I was going to read another quote. Yeah. And I think this is the quote that I felt like, in my eyes, like really redeemed uh, Shizuka. And that was when she was kind of like thinking about Katrina towards the end. And she says something like, okay, um, to save a soul without killing, that way was close to her, uh, herself, Shizuka. But for Katrina, such a song was still possible. And uh, then she says, let Katrina forever be safe and loved with a home, with her music, with an entire lifetime ahead. And I think, you know, her like love for Katrina, her willing to sacrifice herself for her, as you said, was her redemption arc. And if it weren't for that, yes, terrible person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, there's a m very small moment in the book with one of the, with a high-end 
uh, violin shop. Yeah. That with a character named Helvar Grunberg or Grunfeld. And that character is shown to be, it's hard, it's shown to be transphobic or, you know, a little dismissive of Katrina, but also dismissive of Asian culture. Mm -hmm. I think it's not super explicit, but, but Shizuka says to him, you're going to do this regardless. And he's like, "Mm -mm, no. And she goes, Shizuka says to this Helvar guy, well, it's too bad you haven't, the world is changing and you haven't changed with it. And then the last line of that paragraph is that guy Helvar coincidentally died of a heart attack right Mm -hmm. after. And so I was like, he's being punished for not accepting what was before him. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting contrast to, to, it's a small moment. And I think the author is just sort of enjoying killing really in a way, mm-hmm. a bigot that's not going to change regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at it, sort of the landscape of empathy, it, it could have been an interesting choice to have him have a great moment of Shizuka schooling him and having him change or understand, or at least something. Um, but she sort of, I think the author, by doing that, it sort of acknowledges that there are fatalities in the in the struggle for acceptance. There are that, and also maybe the idea that some people are just never going to change, right? So, right. like, why waste their your time? Not to say to kill them or whatever, but yeah. by, by ending that character's journey in the story, it's like, right. well, the story is not about them. It's it's fine, right? Right, and and you just very cogently and lovingly showed. Um, Shizuka's redemption arc, which somehow was a little elusive to me, but you're right, it's there. You're, yeah, it's perfectly there, absolutely. But she could have been a tragic figure where she didn't have absolutely. a happy ending with land, she could have gone to hell, and mm-hmm. it would have been tragic because she would have changed, but still mm-hmm. was a fatality in that, mm-hmm. in that road to uh, you know, social acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, I will wow. say. I was also going to say that I feel like this is very much like a, a like women's a woman's story because it talks about like motherhood. It talks about the relationship of women. The men are kind of the bad guys, which I I, I was like kind of noticing like uh, what Marcus does, mm, right? Exactly. The reaction to um, the girl he likes his boyfriend's like calling um, his mom a slur. Um, the father, Katrina's father, right? Mister um, So, who like. Uh, like sexually assaults uh, Katrina, Um, the violin shop owner, even like I think Lucy's grandfather, like they were like really harsh to her because she was not a boy, you know? Um, But I I do think that there's something interesting in that. And all of these characters are all women and they're like forging their own kind of relationships despite some of that mistreatment by men. Um, Anyways. Well, I mean, speaking of the the death I just brought up, mm-hmm. the bigoted violin shop owner, and then the only other deaths I believe in the book are mm-hmm. Marcus, who's Land's son, mm-hmm. especially an alien, yeah, um, kills this girl and her boyfriend mm-hmm. because they call his mother a slur mm-hmm. for lesbian, mm-hmm. um, which is. What do you think of that? And then he, he he sort of gets blooped to the 
back to the galaxy to keep yeah. them from, to keep him away from the repercussions in the earthling world. But yet he's doesn't pay for those murders. In quotes. It felt unresolved. Like they put him in stasis, right? Yeah. It definitely felt unresolved in a lot of ways. And then he kind of again disappears in the story because he's just becomes this like um object for them to kind of work around. Um I, I think there was something interesting in the younger sibling. Was it Wendy was the name I want to yeah. say? And she discovered some information and then that affected how he thought about things, which led to those deaths. It seemed like the book was setting up, but both Wendy and Marcus didn't have like the full picture um, and didn't understand like the full story of things. Do you remember that part? I think it was something about like coordinates or some sci-fi thing. Oh, you mean the full story of their intergalactic adventure? Not the social landscape of America. Of, oh, of, no, no, not yeah. that. Not yeah. that. I, uh, because I remember there was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where um, Lon, it was like, you know, one, amazed at the, like, the, the genius of her daughter in some ways, but then being also like, but you forgot to include all these other variables right. and showed her. And then Wendy uh, thinks to herself, like, I was the cause of all of this because I didn't know, I didn't understand. But I, I, it made me think about, like, I think we talk about this too, like the way information kind of gets passed along and how like information can like affect people or the lack of information um, or the lack of right information. Yeah. But in a way the the killings that were, if you think about it, the three people that were killed are, were all not nice to other people. I mean, in terms of their social like to trans and to gay. Was the girlfriend though, like, it seemed like so here's the thing maybe i misread this but yeah. i got more the sense that it was the boyfriend who was saying those things and the girlfriend that was marcus's own toxic like masculinity frustration because this was the object he liked story. her yes and then he Marcus killed her and but i i mean maybe i misremembered but it did not seem like she was the one that was engaging in all the slurs and stuff it was the boyfriend and his friends and so i feel like she was a a very like unfair casualty. Yeah, I was thinking that Marcus is a representation for just like angry youth because she's like yeah that sort of unrestrained angry youth that will cause damage, self damage or damage to others. But yet, when you think about it, the he wasn't killing someone at, uh, out of um, you know that they were good people. So sort of you, even the girlfriend, you get the sense that they're just sort of being nasty. Yeah. So they were, you know, could show, you know, that, you know, I mean, AO, the author could be just interested in showing like, you know, you know, you're mean to outside groups, you're going to get bland. I don't know. It's, no. an, it's another interesting facet of this. I mean. Yeah. I, I will say there is, I'm not great at like interpreting like, oh, the writing style and all that kind of stuff. But, yeah. you know, I, I do think that there, the language, even though there are really like complex elements, there is a kind of simplified language that I think helps me be okay with some of the like really like weird stuff that happens. Like if it was told in more descriptive ways, um, mm -hmm. maybe I'd be like, I don't know. But the more like simplified, I don't even know if that's the right term, um, I think gives me the sense of like maybe a more I want to say like mythological story or like more I don't know a symbolic tale in some mm -hmm. ways not something that's like really rooted so deeply in um 
reality where like the setting is like really richly described or something. So very well put, my darling. Yeah, I think you're actually sort of right. I think I, I agree. I mean, I think that's what's happening here for sure. Um, it's just because it, it's sort of like you have to say, well, when you think about it, why did he kill these two kids? And and just like with mythology, it's like, well, why does Medusa do that? And then it can really kick off um, other conversations that do go deeper than the book itself does. Because they, the family helps them clean that. Like they use these, yeah. I don't know, phasers and the organic matter of their bodies disappeared. And that's like, like, how's that work? We don't know, right? And we're just, yeah, we'll, you know, never know, ever find them again. And we're just kind of like being told to accept that. And, but it seems like it works within the context of this writing style and in the story. I will say the one part where they described him being shot and they talk about like this half the face. Be- like that was like actually more detailed than I necessarily needed. And it was a yeah. little bit startling. But I, I, I think, I mean, I think Aoki definitely, um, like I said, I say this about first novels and I think it could be a truism just sort of threw a lot in, like through the, you know, just went wild with her senses and, and sort mm-hmm. of covered a lot of detail and made, and, you know, didn't necessarily worry too much about a cohesive mm-hmm. oral universe or indeed universe, because like we started this off, it's like how do demons and aliens coexist in the same universe? We're not really sure. She doesn't really build the world that clearly, mm-hmm. you know? Um, do you think there'll be a sequel? No. You think it's a sequel? I could be wrong, but yeah. I feel like some of the tonal stuff towards the end, especially about like uh, the way like Lon, no, sorry, uh, Shizuka um, describes like they get missives from Earth. Katrina is kind of doing well. It felt like an epilogue, like you know, like this is their story kind of continues along these paths and our kids have grown up basically because they're there on earth alone in some ways. Right. That kind of like maternal separation. And Edwin, the other sibling, you know, was an alien, but he really just wanted to be a cook. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, they went around to different restaurants. I mean, a lot of food description in this book, for sure. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. The the book deals a lot with food and music, two things that you cannot Mm -hmm. really fully get through the, media of literature I will say too like um, the author is very I think writes about music in a very interesting way like I feel like they I don't know a lot about music but it seems like they have a lot of skill or experience and I do feel those descriptions are very like well written very interesting and like really draws you in because it is kind of hard to talk write about certain things that are meant to be experienced right the author does that really well. So I, you know, yeah. I agree. And I think if you also knew, like with anything, you knew some of the pieces or you were a violinist or a musician yourself, it would even have more resonance for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was an, an a interesting endeavor to, to put forward music and words. And music and words. And, and I think how the players are feeling and what music means to them and, and that kind of process or the expression of themselves yeah. through music is very interesting. Um, <sighs> I think they did a good job. So that was Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. Crystal, you were fabulous today, I must tell you. 
You're inspiring. I think it's just, I mean, I was just going to totally give you a terrible like backhanded compliment because I was going to say, I think it's because my connection is so much clearer, <laughs> but that helps. But like, it, I could listen to you more than I feel like I have. <laughs> Jesus, what am I admitting? No, I don't mean that. I mean, I could, I don't know. I just felt connected to you today. Very yeah, maybe I feel you gotta meet in person already. This night. Yeah, I feel like maybe it's just like I feel connected to this book, even though yeah, it's a yeah. book. And I, um, I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't know if we're still recording, but I, I will say, like, I've talked to people, or I was, I was doing something, but I like to join a lot of like book clubs and and like book committees and things like that because I think that's like the best way to know somebody because so much is revealed through yeah. discussions of books and how it relates to their own experiences and their interpretations of things that are happening. And so um you know I feel like books are a very powerful tool to like feel connected to each other. Well, that's exactly I was thinking when I was talking earlier about, you know, identities and, and mm -hmm. social issues. And I was like, part of my brain was saying, you're not talking about the book yet. And you're not talking about the book. And I thought, but then I also said to myself, as I was talking, this is what happens when you talk about books. It, it does. And I think it's totally legitimate. It, it brings up conversations and ideas that are related to the book, but also have a broader social meaning. And I think that's exact and, and personal meaning. It inspires personal discussion. I mean, I've had, I, it's a truism in, in the book discussion group that I have when most people don't like the book, they always say it's, that was the best conversation we had. Yeah. Because we talk about what the book's issues were, not so much about how it was written and what, if you like the characters or not, but you bring up the book's issues and also it makes you, it forces you, or at least I force myself to figure out why. You can't just say, I hate it. You have to say, you have to really think about why. Mm -hmm. And then usually you actually come to an understanding with that book, I think. Yeah. You sort of hate it in quotes less. One thing I want to say before we go is, and I think I've said it before in lots of ways, and uh, I always say that, like I've said everything, but I really have come to believe, and reading this book actually was one of the ways that made me surface this emotion. Like I said, we can say we know things, but until you feel them as well, it's a different ball game because this is gonna sound trite, but when I really felt it, I was like, this is a revelation. Literally reading for a half an hour a day, and I mean reading a book, mm -hmm. um, not a, on a device, not anything distractive, just you and the object that can be nothing else but that object, a book, Mm -hmm. really is emotionally therapeutic. I mean, just the, even if it's, doesn't matter what the content is, I find it with the rise in my own life of devices and online stuff mm -hmm. with the past two and a half years, I find it incredibly therapeutic. I get, it orients my head in a little bit, just a half hour by the, by minute 29, I feel a little more focused and a little more optimistic. Oh, okay. About life, just literally having that co communion between me and, and the author's brain in this object that is nothing mm -hmm. else but a book, not a camera, not a text deliverer, and blah, blah. Yeah. Just I, no, I, I will say, like, I've been more recently, like, reading more, like, physical books that are longer and not just, like, a, a quick read. And there is something about, like, I'm going to work and I'm taking this one book I've been reading for the last week. And it feels like I'm bringing a buddy with me. <laughs> like, yeah. it's and I'm meaningful. I think it's very meaningful. Yeah. The beauty right. of these books, like the covers, the, the, mm -hmm. you know, the front piece that I don't know. I just love everything about them. 
Yeah, I will. I will make it my mission to make everyone else love them as well. <laughs> All right, my dear, my darling, my crystal dear. We're thank you everybody for listening to us. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thanks for listening to The Librarian is In, a podcast by the New York Public Library. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play, or send us an email at podcasts at nypl.org. For more information about the New York Public Library, please visit nypl.org. We are produced by Christine Farrell. Your hosts are Frank Hilarious and Crystal Chen.